yeah, the universe is one. And and I think I think we we intuitively sense that despite all the things that 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 seem to try to divide us, but uh, we sense that, and I think I think science is is coming coming there to the universe. And like you say, whatever word we put on, we could call it God, we could call it you know, Buddha nature, whatever whatever words doesn't change the fact that we are connected. We are connected at this this very beautiful this beautiful level of of of, of compassion, of kindness, of wisdom, life force. Welcome to a Curious Yogi podcast. I'm your host, Bobby, here to illuminate your practice as we discover what it means to walk the yogi's path. Together with wise friends and awakening teachers, we uncover the answers to our greatest questions. I'm so delighted you're here. Now let's get curious. Welcome back to the show, listeners. As usual, I'm excited and delighted to introduce you to this week's guest. I'm joined by Keith Robinson, a semi-retired sommelier and practicing Buddhist who has written extensively on the relationships between wine and culture, the environment, spirituality, and the creation of new values for our times. Since childhood, Crohn's disease has been his lifelong nemesis, companion, and teacher. Over his lifetime, Crohn's brought him to the brink of death many times. He underwent 11 major abdominal surgeries and has been hospitalized again and again. When Keith was 13 years old, he began to practice and study Buddhist teachings. Born in the early 50s, today Keith and his partner, comrade, and free-range gardener Yoshiko, their two daughters and three grandsons, practice Nichirian Buddhism and engage in dialogues of hope and healing in Calgary, Canada. His new book, The Buddha in Our Bellies, explores questions of identity and belonging. It's the inspiration for our conversation around the search for joy and purpose through suffering and despair. Enjoy this one, sweet seeker. So welcome, Keith, to a Curious Yogi podcast. I'm really honored and delighted to have you here with me and the listeners. Well, thank you very much, Bobby. I'm so excited to be here. I've listened to a number of your podcasts and uh, just to be in that same group of people and then to be able to speak together with your listeners is very exciting for me. Yeah, it's going to be great because I feel, though, you know, this is kind of a yoga podcast, but really for me, why I started this show was to highlight the many brilliant, wonderful spiritual paths, whatever they may be. And I think it's just the perfect time to introduce your book, The Buddha in Our Bellies, and talk about Buddhism and spirituality in that context and your brilliant life story that you've highlighted in this beautiful book. It's a memoir, it's poetry, it's a beautiful uh, interpretation of the Buddha's life and enlightenment. It's just a really wonderful book. So I'll start by just appreciating you. And and uh, like I said before, how wonderful I thought the book was. It was so moving and touching and captivating. Like I couldn't put it down. My partner was like, are you still reading that book? And I really just loved it. So I'll start by telling all the listeners the Buddha in our bellies go out and get it we're going to put it in the show notes where to find it but I just wanted to start by really appreciating the book it's amazing oh thank you very very much I mean the book contains so much even in the title we could have just a whole episode around the title which is such a beautiful 
title that you called the book, The Buddha in Our Bellies. And can you start by maybe just speaking a little bit of why you chose to call your memoir in this beautiful book, The Buddha in Our Bellies, and how that highlight how that encompasses your your whole life really well i have crohn's disease and so a lot of my a lot of my story uh is is about my experience with crohn's disease i've had it since i was a kid and uh so my my belly i've had a what's the word ambivalent relationship with my belly over my life because it's been the, the cause or uh of a lot of a lot of pain um, I've had 11 major surgeries, endless, endless issues with it. But at the same time, or or along my lifetime, uh, my my belly getting in touch with my guts has been the source of my healing. I've been writing for about 30 years, um, writing um, mostly related to my profession, which I'm a sommelier. So I've written about wine, wine culture, wine and society, wine and spirituality. Um, as well as other other writings about Buddhism, et cetera. I never wrote about my relationship to my belly. And in this process of of doing so, I, you know, I thought, who would want to read a book about this guy's bowel movements? Nobody. <laughs> but if I'm going to be honest and true to myself, this this is very the central difficulty of my life. And uh, as well as the source of whatever you want to call it, the salvation of my life as well, or the or the opening, the transformation of my life has been when I get in touch with those aspects of, of my life that come from my belly. Intuition, for example, guts, as they, you know, we have these words like like, you know, a gut feeling. And what well, well, science is starting to find out that these aren't these aren't just sayings. They're actually, it's actually anatomy. A lot of our most innermost sense of self comes from our intestines origin, originates in our intestines. So, the Buddha in our belly, as a, as a as a practicing Buddhist, I've come to believe, I've come to understand, I've come to realize that enlightenment or wisdom, compassion, those 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 elements of the Buddha, what the Buddha experienced, are within every single human being. And I was only able to get in touch with that myself through my Buddhist practice, but only when I was able to integrate that into my experience with my disease and with my my own my own body. So we were talking about the Buddha in my belly, but then my wife's story came into it as well. And to be to be fair, we both have Buddhas in our bellies. And so we we tried to be a little bit more inclusive and perhaps our readers as well. Yeah, I definitely felt that there was such a relatability, even though like it was, and it was also very illuminating for me as someone that doesn't know anything about Crohn's disease. And so thank you for sharing that for the vulnerability and the way that you shared your story. I think that's one of the reasons why it's so captivating and interesting because of the way in which you share about the disease in general, like it's very informative, but also your personal experience of it, which has been like, very intense, but also hearing Yoshiko's story, there is like this relatability and like what you said that by the end of the book, or even partway through your story, there's this sense that, that we can all kind of relate to as the reader that there is this kind of innate wisdom that we all hold 
in spite or amidst the suffering, even if I'm not suffering in the way that you suffered, we all also universally suffer. So it's kind of like there is that relatability. I think when the stories are shared from both you and your partner in such a vulnerable way. Well, thank you. I I totally resonate what you're saying in terms of that in, innate wisdom. At the same time, what I what I found out through my practice and through experience in fighting fighting with Crohn's and uh, finally getting in touch and starting to reconcile who I was as an individual, because my story really isn't about me and Crohn's. It's more about me and me and my identity, my sense of do I belong in this in this world. But that difficulty or that challenge that I had with Crohn's disease is actually my word they use nowadays, my superpower. That is my way of connecting to the world, the way of expressing compassion, the way of actually uh, feeling other people's pain as, as well. So those, those, you know, the, the thing that was the most difficult in my life actually became the greatest benefit, the greatest merit in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, even in the synopsis that you sent of the book that, that this story really is about identity and belonging. And I also want to, even now when I'm hearing speaking here, like this sense of the mind body connection, like even in hearing your story of really being uneasy mentally and emotionally as a young person. And there's this, I think it's so common now for so many people to have such a disconnect from our, our bodies and our minds is like two separate things, but yet like, when we can bring them together, there is a kind of a deeper in sense of kind of being all humans and relating to each other when we can relate to ourselves, if that makes sense. It totally makes sense. And so my struggle with belonging, my sense of my struggle with integrating who I was, my body and my mind, uh, you know, Crohn's disease was sort of one, just one element of that, a sort of primary element that, that Crohn's disease is, is an effect you're allergic to your own digestive tract. And your your body is trying to get rid of it. It's trying to expel your own digestive tract as, as a kind of foreign object. So there's the sense that my own intestines don't belong to me. My body doesn't belong to me. And then at the same time, we moved a lot when I was a kid. Um, and so I didn't have a sense of really belonging to a place. My family wasn't particularly happy. It wasn't, um, my, my parents fought a lot and I didn't especially feel you know wanted or part of part of the family so the sense of not belonging was sort of all pervasive in in my life it seems kind of maybe now buddhism is more in the western world like mainstream or people know about it but like in the what is it the 1960s probably wasn't that widespread like with our population can you speak about how you came to Buddhism and how the practice has shaped your life, really? So uh, when I was 13, uh, my older brother, Pete, came home with um, some new friends, and they were very different than, than his, you know, sort of rehearsal partners that he would they would have over. Um, they were very bright. They were very cheerful. They were very positive. And they said that they were going to they were going to chant Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, uh, which was completely meaningless to me. And, and, and one of the guys turned to me and said, you know, it's the law of cause and effect. And I was like, no, I don't know. I have absolutely no idea what you guys are talking about. And, you know, at the time, uh, this was in Los Angeles, as you said. And, yeah, there was a lot of sort of alternative kind of spirituality going around. Um, people were certainly open open to some 
you know, alternative ways of life and alternative alternative spiritualities. There's a lot of discontent. I think it's very similar to our times today, but that maybe that's a different story. Um, so they came and they 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 tried to explain uh, what they were doing. They they chanted with Pete in his room, and and my I remember sitting outside and. In my bedroom with my, my other brother, and we were listening. We we're like, what is this all about? And they were burning incense. That part was cool. The burning incense part with you, know, smelling the incense, that was cool. Uh, but like, just didn't get it. And they tried to explain that that this chant was a way of activating one's highest life condition or one's highest self, which we all have internally, and as well as it exists in the, in the universe. And it's a way of matching that vibration, that energy that we have inside with that energy outside and then going and apply it in your life. And he talked about world peace and they talked about, you know, changing society through changing the individual. Um, they had this word human revolution, this idea that uh, sort of all of, all of the systems of society, the economic systems, the political systems, even the religious systems were built by human beings. And therefore, they should be working to serve human beings. And if they don't, human beings can change them. That interested me. That that part interested me because they talked about peace. And I yearned for peace. I longed for peace. I didn't have any peace either inside my body or in my family, etc. Uh, so that, that I was interested in. But their way of getting there, they said that the individual has to change. So they were applying this. The way they talked about Buddhism was applying it in, in their lives. And they told their stories about how as I tell in the, in the in the book, a little bit about that. So it took a while, uh, but I, I eventually Pete kept taking, taking me to these meetings, and eventually I, I tried it, and uh, I started having experiences with the practice myself. Mm-hmm. Would you say there's like one defining moment where you really felt like such a connection with this practice, especially, or with the chanting? Because now you've devoted your whole life really to Buddhism and Nichiren Buddhism is slightly different I'm to my understanding. Maybe you could also speak a little bit about that, like how it differentiates or is similar to other types of Buddhism. So, yeah, what we practice, it's a group. The group is called Soka Gakkai, Soka Gakkai International, and it's in almost every country in the world. Um, the activities consist mostly of small group meetings, but at the same time, Collectively, we work for peace, education, and culture in society. So as the practice is applied in one's daily life, the group is applied in in, in, in society and working to uh, contribute to those three goals, peace, education, and culture. Um, there wasn't sort of one moment when I resonated with the practice so much. In fact, I struggled. I struggled with the practice and understanding what that was about, but I, I, I committed to trying it and studying and going to the meetings and, and getting involved in their activities. But, it, but connecting to the chanting and everything was more of an evolving kind of a thing as I was starting to experience these changes in my life. So as they, as they talked about this connection between the inner self, your inner um, higher self, the person that you really believe yourself to be in your heart of hearts, that person does live inside of you and can come out. And at the same time, it lives in the world around us and the universe around us. And by chanting, the idea is you're able to connect with it inside and then connect with it on the outside as well. So I can, I mean, I can honestly say that every time I chant, I don't necessarily feel that. I don't necessarily have that experience, but it's part of that practice and development over 
over time. So that 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 experience didn't didn't happen in in a flash. That that took. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sort of still in that kind of process, to be perfectly honest. I can just like when I was reading the book, I can imagine you and so many other like angsty, unhappy teenagers, and you know, just even to be a teenager at any point, you know, the last I don't know, few hundred <laughs> years, it's such a it's such a confusing time, and to have this kind of practice to move towards did it help you have that sense of belonging and connection with yourself and that's kind of what kept you going yeah definitely uh the chanting as an as an evolving kind of experience started getting me in touch with who i was as a person and then doing the activities and in the community um i started see i started getting a sense of who i was my own identity and so crohn's disease and all my angst all those teenage angst that i that i thought you know, really define me, they did start to define me in a, in a sense of becoming a purpose. They started change, turning from my misery into, into a sense of, well, this is who I am, and this is what I've got to offer to the world. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, like before how you were saying that um, working towards peace, and that was something that you were like, that attracted you, you were attracted to peace. And it seems like that's what we all really desire. Like everybody's true desire when we break everything like down to the most fundamentals we all want peace and how it's so rare that to be able to find a practice or a spiritual teacher or a way or a community that fosters that and I think that's also something that's so uplifting about your story is that you you found this practice that resonated with you and I also love how you wove your story in with the story of the Buddha and his story of going from confusion and suffering and angst as well in a certain way to enlightenment. And at one point you even felt you expressed that you could relate to Buddha's struggle. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, in, in writing the book, we, uh, we really wanted to write this for people that know nothing about Buddhism. And potentially would not would not find out anything about Buddhism, particularly about nature and Buddhism. And we wanted to somehow encourage people and and touch the hearts of people that don't know anything about this, but without it being kind of an introduction kind of kind of a book, because I'm not qualified to write an introduction and and it probably wouldn't work with a memoir anyway. So we we really struggled about how to do that, how because we can't talk about our lives without talking about our Buddhist practice. And so we had to say something about uh, Buddhism and I chanted about it and we talked about it and we, you know, back and forth. And, and what happened was that for 55 years, I've been studying about Buddhism. I've been talking about Buddhism. I've been, I've been communicating about Buddhism and thinking about it, all these questions and all these stories just came out of me, the, the stories and how they were, how they related to my life and my experience, how this, this fellow who, who, who lived some, they think some 2,500 years ago that there were elements of his story that, that really did, I feel are still, are still speaking to me today. I mean, I think many people know the story. He supposedly was a prince, but, but probably wasn't, but he lived some kind of life of privilege. And then he left his wife and kid to go wander off to save the world. Um, and that's sort of how the, the legend goes. And if I really consider, and I chanted about this, like, why would he, why would he leave that? You know, was he just so altruistic? Was he already some kind of enlightened being? Or was he really miserable? 
was he really miserable and had to get out and had to find, he had to find something for himself and that might help other people as well. In the yogic scriptures, there's this concept of divine uneasiness and that actually that we should kiss the feet of our uneasiness because it it is actually that brilliant highest self that you were talking about that's guiding us towards that enlightened state and without that friction of the world and like that we would kind of all just be maybe complacent. I think even if it is just a legend that the Buddha was a prince, I think that's kind of the common knowledge that for people that maybe don't know that much, we think, oh yeah, he was a prince and he was unhappy. But it kind of is like a good teaching for us that even if someone has everything, they can still suffer because as humans, we suffer. And that's why we go towards deeper practices in life to bring more clarity and truth and I think the Buddha is so relatable in that way. Also, when we think like, okay, he was a prince, but he's also just a man and he gained enlightenment. And even in the book, reading Yoshiko's story and her, the suffering her, her and her family went through and, and how we can all triumph beyond suffering. It is, it's so inspiring, even if it is just a legend, that part, or even if it's not like, in stories like yours and I think it helps us come together because we all suffer and we all want peace I I love that divine uneasiness I've never heard that but it's so it just it just seems to describe what I what I experienced in my life where where those those things that are I'm uneasy about those things that uh, are genuine misery are actually driving me forward or actually they're actually my teacher they're my greatest teacher mm-hmm so, yeah, I love it, too, because I when I'm really struggling, I try to remember that, like, <laughs> this is divinely gifted also, because it is, it's kind of a guidepost uh, that, okay, if there's something causing me friction and easiness, it means there's something to be looked at, or I need to put my attention somewhere higher. But I also really appreciated your story of meeting your teacher when you were, I think, in your late 20s, you met your teacher in Paris. And I could really relate to that because meeting my teacher was such a turning point for me in my spiritual life and the way in which I've viewed the world ever since. Can you speak about that experience? Yeah, well, I can talk about my relationship with my mentor for for many many podcasts, Bobby, because uh, it is it is really central to my experience, and I and I really appreciate again on listening to several of your podcasts how how you come you come back to that in in, in many of your guests, and I think uh, in the West we're starting to get hip to this now the uh, the importance of the mentor and the role of the mentor in in, in many many different areas uh, of life. So I, I, I know I wasn't in the late twenties. I was seventeen years old, and and, uh, and I'd been practicing for a couple of years, and I still didn't, you know, I still, like I said, the practice itself wasn't really resonating with me, and and there was elements of the group that weren't really resonating with me, and you know, I had so many doubts. But the uh, the the chap who was the leader of the group uh, uh, named Ikeda Daisaku Ikeda, um, his writings and the things that he was doing in the world, they totally resonated with me that this because uh, he was he was putting into practice um the, this idea of the human revolution of transform oneself and 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 be engaged with society be engaged engaged with life and, and fully take it in 
So, uh, you know, I, again, I'd only been doing this for a couple, a couple of maybe three years. I r- realized that that I, I knew he wasn't going to save me. I knew he wasn't going to fix my problems. I knew he wasn't going to solve all my. Uh, I, I knew that I wasn't. I was naive, but I wasn't that naive. But somehow I felt like I had to meet him. I had to make a, a connection with him because I didn't. I didn't want to be. And I should ask you this because in in a number of your podcasts you talk about a living guru. Uh, does that mean the guru is alive, physically alive, rather than a guy in a book? Or And in my understanding, living guru is someone that is alive. But for a lot of people, their guru is someone that has passed. But for them, they're very much alive. So I think maybe, I mean, I'm no expert on it. But like from, from my experience, my guru was alive and now he's passed. But for me, he's still alive. So... I guess it depends. There is, I know, this draw for a lot of people that are seeking, and this is kind of my next question for you, to meet, have a mentor, a teacher, a guide who is living, who you can maybe even not have a close relationship, but have their presence there in that like very tangible, real way. Okay, I think that that really clarifies it for me, that living, the relationship is living, whether the Mm -hmm. person is, 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 is actually still alive or not. And so, yeah, so this chap, Ikeda, uh, you know, lives on the other side of the world, different culture, uh, different language, different generation, probably, you know, different sort of personal values and whole different life experience than, than me. But uh, his, his what he was doing deeply, deeply resonated with me. And uh, anyway, I heard that he was going to be in, 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 in Paris in, in, in uh, spring of 1972. And through this semi-bizarre set of circumstances, I made my way there. Um, uh, seven, I was 17 and, you know, didn't speak a word of French, didn't have any contacts. I just had this address of of the Sokogakai group in, in Paris. And I ended up uh, spending a week with him and his wife. Again, I, I, I didn't I didn't want to be his fan. I didn't want to be sort of a passive recipient of, of consolation and encouragement. And I really even didn't want to be a disciple. I, I wanted to help him because I felt like he was he was on my side and I wanted to be on his side. So uh, what happened in that week, he didn't do anything particularly special. I mean, he did lots of special things, but nothing. He didn't say some kind of magic words to me and the, some light didn't go off. I was already really seeking him and he was already committed and you know, with a life of integrity towards working for peace and towards towards this practice and towards helping every single person awaken that those higher uh, states of life, the higher conditions of life. And I knew I, I knew that that was I knew at the time, maybe this was a light going off, but I, I knew that was going to be the most important experience. This was that week was going to be the most important week of my life. I knew I knew that then whatever else happened, whatever else I did with my life, if I ended up going to war, if I ended up you know, dying of Crohn's, whatever. Uh, I knew that uh, was going to be the most important time of my life, that my commitment that I made to him at that time. And I was right. It was the most important week of my life, but in totally not the way that I imagined, uh, in, in completely uh, surprising and, and, and much richer, much fuller. You know, uh, real life is so much more colorful in, than, than anything we can visualize or anything we can imagine. Uh, about what we want to get out of it or what the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow looks like. It's it's so much more beautiful than that. 
Mm, yeah, I can definitely relate to that. And just to like the potency of the experience of being with, you know, it doesn't even matter if we put the language on it, like enlightened or realized or just someone that's a living example to be around that, the charge and what it gives our individual spiritual practice, and then the inspiration to be in the world, exemplifying that which the teacher has shown us. So I think it's kind of beautiful that it crosses that, you know, religion or spiritual practices, it doesn't matter, but that mentor, guide, elder, disciple, student, learner relationship. Even I had someone on the podcast, Melina, she's First Nations, and she was talking about her relationship with her elder. Mm. And it was so similar. So it's so beautiful to see how kind of time memorial, we have this desire as a seeker to find truth and clarity, but how much more inspiring the journey is when we have someone there that's walking with us, but sort of a few steps ahead. Well, that's, that's, that's so true, Bobby. I, I believe that for me, at least, um, of all my relationships, that the mentor student or mentor disciple relationship is the most pure. It's the most volunteer relationship. It's, it's, it's entered in, into by two responsible adults that are making a choice um, and are making a commitment um, all, I think all of our other relationships, you know, have elements of, of, of sort of external influences, you know, you know, we don't get to pick our neighbors, right. And we might pick our partner in life, but, but just think of all those external influences of culture and sexuality and, and family and that, that are part of part tied up in, in there. This mentor, mentor disciple relationship for me, at least is, is so purely uh, voluntary and it, it depends on how, how much I'm willing and able and struggling to fulfill my commitment. It doesn't really depend on what he does or doesn't do. I would say also that's very rare relationship because it's not so, it's, it's, you know, like I've heard this analogy before where they say like, you don't go to medical school without a teacher or professor. So why should we think we can, we, we don't need a guide or a mentor to understand a spiritual life, the higher, deeper aspects of life, which are so subtle and mysterious and hidden, like as if we should do it on our own. So I think it is, it is so wonderful when we can have those relationships in our life. And I know a lot of people that are listening, they are also have a teacher or are looking for a teacher so I'm always like definitely love having the conversation about these relationships because I think they're important for all of us I, I think they are too or at least I know how important it's been in in my life and, mm -hmm. but it's been what my challenge has been for the last whatever it is 55 years whatever is to find my own way my Keith way of being a disciple, of integrating the, you know, all the teachings and the practice and then the, the information and then, and then turn it into my own uh, way. And once I, I'm able to do that, then I can talk about it very freely. I can, I can mm -hmm. agree and I can practice, I can practice very, very freely. There isn't sort of one model. There isn't sort of one cookie cutter of what, what does it mean to be uh, a disciple? It's, it's gotta be, mm -hmm. it's gotta come from, 
from oneself. Yeah, that's beautiful. And when you were speaking just that, it made me think of like the way in which you've lived this practice, your experience, which you share so beautifully and honestly in the book, but also, you know, you've had many surgeries and even a few near death experiences. And I'm wondering if this practice and the way in which you've embraced and lived Buddhism, what that those near death experiences were like having this anchor of your spiritual practice of that relationship with your teacher is such a core part of your daily life. So, you know, meeting almost death, facing real severe illness and having this anchor, like how has that helped you? Yeah, they're, they're totally, they're, they're totally, totally, they're totally connected. I've been, I've been close quite a few times. I, I recall being wheeled into uh, emergency surgeries and uh if my wife is there i will tell her that a couple of times i was able to write it down this, this sense of i'm not done yet that there's something left for me to do that my role my part in this big play isn't isn't finished and yeah i i i, I get that i don't know maybe it's a survival mechanism or you know, it's 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 the sense of transforming my my suffering into purpose. Mm-hmm. That that comes from the practice. In reading the book, like I know I already mentioned before, like that I really admire the honesty and vulnerability that you share in your life story. And I'm wondering if there's a if if how can we, me being and the listeners move past that sense of fear and isolation into that space of honesty and vulnerability in the way in which you share and live? Oh boy, that's a fantastic, fantastic question. I think we all at our core believe ourselves to have a purpose and life can seem purposeless. And a lot of the reality of our world today can certainly function to defeat our sense of purpose. I think life does does drive us forward. That divine discontent that you talked about, uh, I think we're, we've, it's, it's in all of our toes telling us to get moving. This is not in any way meant to min- minimize anybody's you know, genuine suffering. There's a lot of really lousy things going on in our world today and happening to people that they're not responsible for. But I do believe that regardless of the, the the challenge that there is that possibility can be found that choices can be found i believe everybody wants to find them yeah like before we were saying that everybody does seem to want peace deep down somewhere and i love too at the beginning i said that the buddha nature is a, is in you is in me it's in all of us and whether you know, whatever language we want to say, like you say Buddha, I say Krishna, someone says God or love, but that, that sense is in us all. Would you like, would you say that it's universal? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The universe is one. And, and I think, I think we, we intuitively sense that um, despite all the things that, that, that seem to try to divide us, but uh, we sense that. And I think, I think science is is coming coming there too. 
universe, mm-hmm. the universe. And like you say, whatever word we put on, we could call it God, we could call it you know, Buddha nature, whatever, whatever words doesn't change the fact that we are connected. We are connected at this, this very beautiful, this beautiful level of, 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 of compassion, of kindness, of wisdom, life force. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. I love that sense of oneness that's revealed when the Buddha gains enlightenment and the way in which you write about it in the book. So I'm wondering if now you would be open to sharing that part of the book or another part of the book, which you feel reflects that space of unity and oneness and Buddha nature. I would, I would love to. And uh, so I, I will read from the beginning of the chapter of the awakening, um, which is my attempt to, speculate on what happened that night that this chap Siddhartha gained enlightenment as, be- as best as they know it was in 445 BCE and he was he meditated that night under a fig tree in a place that's in the Bihar state of India now uh, they called Gaya endless becoming continuous fading away blossoming and opening decomposing and regenerating, a cosmos unfolding and enfolding. This is the anguish and the beauty of nature, our revolving universe. Siddhartha meditated upon it all, witnessed it all, contained it all, the macro and the micro in each breath. Alone he sat under a fig tree, a singular spot on the surface of spinning planet earth he no longer struggled with his angst to confront without despairing the misery of existence nor was he able to let go of this existential struggle no easier than letting go of the curve of his elbow the beat of his heart without struggling or letting go what remained finally and fully He welcomed himself, a lone seeker with all his doubts, allowing life as it is, creation as it is. He made room under the tree for suffering. He welcomed himself into his story. In accommodating himself, embracing himself, he found room for others. Let life in, the suffering and the joy, Listen to it. Embrace it fully. In that moment, the infinite variety of creation emerged. Like light through a drop of dew, life in the moment sparkled into a rainbow. Around him, with inevitability of day following night, life force dawned. Within him, life force emerged, unfurling from inside Siddhartha. Life force rises and ever fades ungraspable, yet as real as the Naranjana River flowing past his tree, flowing still. So beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Bobby. It's so beautifully written. The one line that really struck me is when you said he welcomed himself in. And I think that's such an important point 
for us to remember that we don't need to push our suffering away or that uneasiness away, but that rather in the embracing of all aspects of ourselves and of others, that that is where like that peace can arise. Yeah, that's exactly my experience that in, in, in my quest to figure out where in this world I belonged, I had to first belong to myself. And belonging to myself meant all of me. My weaknesses, mm-hmm. strengths, everything, all of me. But that's a, it's a big, it's a big feat for a human in this world, for us, just the way the world is to actually embrace all of ourselves when the tendency of the mind is to criticize and put down and separate. But I think just that's such a good point to remember is that we welcome all parts of ourselves. Well, the good news is we don't have to do it all at once. We don't have to do it all in one day or, or, or one sitting. We can do it bit by bit, day, day by day, and you know, be kind to ourselves on the suffer uh, on those days that we don't welcome ourselves. On those days that we stay up at two o'clock in the morning thinking about the dumb thing that we did when we were sixteen, be, be gentle on ourselves too. That's a good reminder, also. Yeah, really beautiful. I know I really loved that part of the book Thank and the much. whole chapter. Thank you. My next question is: I'm wondering. How would you define a spiritual life or an awakening life? Wow, that's a wonderful question. I think more and more we're understanding that it requires community, that enlightenment or awakening, it's a it's a team sport. We do most of it by ourselves, but as humans, we live in community. So I think I think I think it requires community. We have to find a community. And as we talked about, probably requires a mentor. Find a mentor who's about the world, not about themselves, that wants to lift you up higher than they themselves are. I think somewhere in there a daily practice is required. If you miss a day, skip a day, fine. But there's a there's something about the cycle of day and night and, and morning and night and and uh, daily practice. So in my case, I, I recite portions of the Lotus Sutra in chant Namyo Renge Kyo um, in the morning and in the evening. Other times of the day too, if I've time, but, but it's sort of a daily rhythm. And I think find finding purpose that's sort of beyond oneself, beyond what, what can I get into what can I give? It's a mistake, or I make the mistake when I think of spirituality as something that goes on inside of me. It goes on and it goes on off the mat, if, if I can use that expression. Um, it goes on, you know, in the family, in the in the job place, in 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 relationships, in in my community, and 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 can I find a way to connect to somebody that maybe I wouldn't normally connect with, and maybe even encourage that person in some way. I've never quite thought about this question quite as you ask it, Bobby. I think it's a wonderful question. <laughs> Spirituality exists in daily life. Mm. In, in in the bowl of oatmeal and a cup of tea. Beautiful. Yeah. I loved what you said there. Like um one time I heard this quote, it always resonated with me that we keep what we get by giving it away. That that kind of the, the light keeps on burning by lighting the other candles. And like you said, that yes, it's individual work, but you know, we also need each other and others need us. So that is 
I definitely was agreeing with all your points <laughs> there. And I'm also wondering, kind of in that same vein, what advice you would give to someone who is suffering right now, either with a physical illness like you have or an, an inner unease or both maybe? Well, I hesitate to give general advice because I, I know my, you know, my circumstances are my own and, and other people's circumstances, their own. And I would never in any way want to be cavalier and advise other people suffering, but just hope don't give up. Don't give up on this, this, this wonderful world. Don't give up on the possibility of transformation of change. Don't give up on yourself. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And my, uh, my last question I always ask the guests is there's in the in the Vedas, there's this idea of self-inquiry or vichar is the word in Sanskrit that a part of a spiritual practice is contemplation and questioning. So I love to ask the guests if you could leave the listeners with a point of contemplation or a point to question ourselves. So rather than give us the answer, give us a point that has illuminated something in your life, a question or a point of contemplation. Ooh. Boy, oh boy, you ask good questions. <laughs> <laughs> I would ask myself, how does my life experience, who my third grade teacher was, what are my favorite movies? How does my life experience, my suffering, my difficulty, whether it's my boss or my whatever it is, how does all that give me something that only I can contribute? What door does that unlock? That unique, particular to me and only to me experience. That's beautiful. I love that because so often we look so much to the other for what to do or where to put the attention, but you're so right. Like we all have such a unique life story, such unique gifts and treasures and to actually look within ourselves to see what is that instead of so much external, like it's just, I love that to question what is it that's my gift and purpose really I'm so glad we got to have the chance to talk and where can the listeners find your book and connect with you the listeners can find my book on all Amazon sites worldwide I know you're in India and uh, it was a bit of a struggle to get it at a reasonable price in India but we managed to get it at a very reasonable price at 549 rupees um, for, the oh, paper, great. for the paperback um, but it's on all Amazon sites worldwide. Uh, the, exact, the, the price will vary from, from country to country. Um, it's also available on other online booksellers, but you might have to search a little bit for that, as well as the electronic edition. Great. So the Buddha in our bellies, get, people can find it on Amazon. And if they want to connect with you, um, I'll put your website in the show notes or email. The Buddha in Our Bellies has a Facebook page, and that, that might be the best way to connect. If you want to connect with Soka Gakkai around the world, there are there are, there are groups in, in every every city, most every city in the planet. Great. I'll put the, that in the show notes as well. And 
Yeah, thank you again so much. And please give my best to Yoshiko as well. And her story was also equally as captivating. And I loved how you wrote the book together and just the beautiful story of how you met. And like the listeners, they don't know this, but your daughter is such a good friend of mine. And it was such a illuminating way to get to know a friend more more deeply by hearing the story of her parents and it just like I said to you in the email made was so clear why Andrea is such a wonderful person and because she has such wonderful parents oh thank you very much and thank you Bobby for giving me this opportunity uh to talk about my book talk to talk about Buddhism and practice and and to get to know you better as well Thanks for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps the show reach more people. If you'd like to have your greatest spiritual questions answered on the show, send them to me through social or email. And don't forget to follow on your favorite streaming platforms. Let's stay curious, connected, and keep walking the path together. Music graciously offered by Heidi Herdia Groschler. In oneness and delight, this is Bobby signing off until next time.